Acts chapter 15. You know, church people sometimes fight over the stupidest things. We, we get in disagreements and uh, rows and, and tensions over personal preferences in musical tastes or the color of the carpet or where the flower arrangement should go or, you know, what night the Bible study should be held and, and we have our opinions, we all, we all have our own preferences, we all have our own idiosyncrasies. And, and when things don't go our way, we feel like no one listened to us, and we get upset, and we find other people who maybe feel that way, and, and we, I can't believe that. I know, you know, you know when we, divisions start forming in the church, or, or, or uh, we Christians, we, we latch on to our thing. This is our thing in the church. This is my, my, my ministry. This is my thing I do. This is my budget line item that is special to me, or, or whatever, like Gollum, we have our precious, and we hold on to that thing, you know, that's our thing. And, and when others mess with, you know, it's like, do whatever you want in the church, just don't mess with this thing. And once you mess with that, then we get upset and, and factions form. And, and so rather than deferring to one another, rather than serving one another, rather than submitting to one another, rather than honoring one another above ourselves, it's easy to gossip against each other and grumble at each other and, and wrestle with anger toward each other. And, and I wrestle with it too. It's, it's part of our sinful human nature. Maybe you're here this morning and you have been attending worship services at South Shore Baptist Church and so far so good, but you haven't taken that further step of getting involved in maybe a membership class or a Bible study. And perhaps for you, one of the reasons you haven't done that is because you've come from a bad experience. I had a bad experience, and now I'm here. And I, you know, this, you all seem like nice people, but I've been on the insides. I've been behind the curtain, and I know the, the conflict that can happen in a church setting. Or, uh, or maybe you're here this morning, and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, you're interested, you're curious, obviously you're here. But, but there's some, some issues you have, some questions and doubts. And maybe one of those issues is that you have seen Christians behaving badly. You know, you, you look out at the world and you see problems in the world and you think, okay, th- these are things that should be addressed. And then you look at the Christians to see what they're doing to address some of the, the, the great needs that our, our world faces. And instead of sort of Christians moving out in different ways to address those needs, the Christians are duking it out you know, behind the scenes, and you think, people, what are you doing? Someone once quipped that uh, people are hesitant to climb into the lifeboat of the church because they don't want to get caught in a fistfight between the sailors. And yet, and yet, I believe there are some things worth fighting about even in the church. Probably fewer than we think, but there are some. And one of the things worth fighting about, one of the things going to the mat for, that we should be willing to fight over, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus, is worth fighting over. It's worth fighting for. The good news of Jesus Christ is worth leaving a church over. The good news of Jesus Christ is, and I say this one uh, not lightly, it's worth 
splitting a church over. The good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, is worth splitting a denomination over because the gospel of Jesus is worth dying for. Here we come to Acts chapter 15 this morning, and it's a midway point in the book of Acts. Uh, Literarily, it's like halfway in between in terms of the amount of words that come before and after. And it's, it's not only literarily in the middle, it definitely is a pivoting chapter. Uh, up to this point in the book of Acts, there's been the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles, and there's been some confusion. And then after the book of Acts, the focus almost completely shifts to the Apostle Paul and his mission to the, the Gentiles and the Roman world. And right in the middle, right in the pivot, comes chapter 15. And what's chapter 15 about? A church fight. Christians fighting. But they're fighting over something that really matters. They're fighting over the very definition of the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do this morning is just look at the story. Um, it's, I'm going to look at it in three phases. First of all, the conflict, what they were fighting over specifically. That's verses 1 to 5. And then we're going to see a conference. They're going to get together for a conference. The church is going to try to sort out this disagreement. And then the last thing is the conclusion. What, what is it that they conclude as a result of, of the debate they had over the conflict? And they, they come to an answer. And so we're just going to trace that, that process of conflict, conference, and then the conclusion that they reach. And we'll start with the conflict. It's verses 1 to 5. And uh, just kind of give you the, the summary of what the conflict is. They're questioning. The question is, how is a person saved? And there's two positions that are being espoused. One answer is, we're saved through faith in Jesus alone. The other answer is, we're saved through faith in Jesus and a few other things. So is it Jesus alone, or is it Jesus and? And that's the question at hand. So let's look at verses 1 to 5. It says, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And this news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So our story starts out in the city of Antioch which, uh, if, if you've been with us studying Acts, you may remember, was north of Jerusalem, right about where the, the coast along Jerusalem takes a sharp angle and, and Turkey starts coming out. And right at that, that corner uh, is where uh, the church in Antioch was. And it was a very cosmopolitan city, third largest, third largest city in the Roman Empire at that point. And the gospel had come to Antioch, the good news of Jesus. And lots and lots and lots of Gentiles had come to believe in Jesus. So, so at this point in the church's evolution, in, in its sort of development and spread, there, there were now kind of two hubs of the church. There was the, the Jerusalem church, which was predominantly where 
the Jewish Christians were and the apostles were. And then there was the church in Antioch, which was sort of this new hub, and there were a lot of Gentile Christians there. And it was from Antioch now that a lot of the mission into the rest of the Greco-Roman world was taking place. It was sort of a launching pad. So, so you had some people, that's what happened in verse 1, some people from Jerusalem who go down to Antioch, because you always go down from Jerusalem. They went down from Antioch, down to Antioch, and, and they arrived and they said, hey, this is great, all these Gentiles coming to believe in Jesus, super. So to be saved, you need to believe in Jesus and be circumcised and obey, like it says in verse 5, the law of Moses. So it'd be things like eating kosher, keeping the Sabbath day holy and not working, uh, obeying the, the purity ritual laws of what you can touch and what you can't touch so that you stay ceremonially pure. And a lot of those laws that, that the Jewish people followed. And, and so they said, that's what you have to do to be saved. And Paul and Barnabas, it says in verse 2, this brought them into a sharp dispute and debate with them. So in other words, this wasn't one of those things where... Uh, People were just kind of sharing different viewpoints. Oh, that's interesting. You have your viewpoint and I have my viewpoint. Like, no, they were, they were arguing over this. You know, you must be circumcised. And Paul and Barnabas, you know, it's like they were saying, no, 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 that, that whole circumcision thing, you guys are wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. Right? This wasn't like, well, we're just sharing ideas and learning from each other. No. Like, someone's right and someone's wrong. You're either saved by Jesus alone or you're saved by Jesus and some other things. I mean, it's, you can't have it both ways. This is, there is truth. This, this isn't relativism where, well, you know, if it's true for you and it works for you, that's hunky-dory and this is what works. No, no. Like, how are you saved? What's true and what isn't true? And so they got into a sharp dispute about this. And the, the church in Antioch, they couldn't figure it out. I mean, Antioch was like a baby church. They were the daughter church. They were just starting and so they said, will not you guys go back to Jerusalem? That's where the apostles are. That's where the guys who spent time with Jesus are. And you need to get the answer from them because so we've got to sort this out. This is important for how people are saved. And so they traveled to figure out, and, and that's what you have, this travelogue as they go back to Jerusalem, and they finally get there. And so that's the question. Is it Jesus alone? Is that how we're saved? Or is it Jesus and something else. And that may seem strange, sound, sound strange to us to think that anyone would think that to be saved, you had to be circumcised as well and keep the law of Moses. But, you know, think about it from, from that perspective, from the perspective of those folks. It's not that strange because for 2,000 years before Acts chapter 15, God's people, since the time of Abraham, had always, always, always been identified by circumcision, the, the males. That was just, that was the mark. And for 1,500 years prior to Acts 15, God's people had always, had always been supposed to keep the law of Moses, eating kosher, honoring the Sabbath day, ritual purity, all that stuff. And so, so now the Gentiles are being saved, so it really isn't a stretch for these Jewish Christians to think, well, it's great, they believe in Jesus, and now they should take the marks of God's people that have always been held for the last two millennia, like circumcision and the law of Moses. And so there's a debate. So that, that's what the conflict was over. Maybe you're hearing that, and uh, you're still scratching your head, thinking, okay, that still seems like a weird debate to me. <laughs> you're saying this is an important discussion? Maybe you're reading this and thinking, no, no, this is exactly the kind of thing that, 
makes, pe- makes me skeptical about the church. Like, who cares? I mean, to, to argue about circumcision, I mean, it's weird, it's kind of awkward. Like, why are they debating about this? Because there's so many important things in the world. How, why is this an important debate? I'll tell you why it's important. It's because of the last word in verse 1, at least in this translation. Look at verse 1. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. That's why this is important. Not because of the rituals and the customs, but because where they're debating how is a person saved? How can a sinful man like me who has not honored God with my life, who has not uh, walked according to all of God's ways, how can a sinful person like me who has pride and anger and ego lurking inside of me, who doesn't live for the glory of God all the time, who doesn't love my neighbor as myself all the time, how can I be forgiven and reconciled to my God who is a holy, holy God? That's the question. How can you be saved? How can I be saved from my sins? How can I be saved from the coming judgment day where all of my life will be held accountable uh, before God, where, where all of my emails will be public, where all of my past and my thoughts will be made known? How, how can I stand on that day? I need to be saved. I need to be saved. So this isn't some random weird arcane theological dispute between religious folks. This is asking the most fundamental question facing the human race. How can sinful people be made right with their creator and have eternal life and have hope of forgiveness and be his people and be reconciled to God? It's a huge question. Everything is on the line with this question. So they go to Jerusalem. And uh, verse 6, the apostles and elders met together to consider this question. So now we start the conference. So that's the conflict. Is salvation Jesus alone or Jesus and? And so then they come to this conference. And that runs from verses 16 to about verse 21. And uh, the the, the apostles get together and the elders, and they're going to debate this question and try to wrestle through it. So we have in these verses is we have a, a summary of some of the most important speeches that were made during the conference. This doesn't, verses, uh, these verses don't give us everything that was said during the conference. This isn't like a transcript of the meetings. There wasn't the stenographer there taking down all the words and telling us everything. I have no clue. How do those stenography machines work? They have like three keys, and with those three keys, they can take down whole conversations. I'm baffled. I think it's magic. Anyway, there was no machine there taking down stenography notes. But what we have are, are three speeches And I think the reason Luke includes these three speeches is they help us understand the logic that led them to the conclusion they reached. So so they're sort of key speeches that help us see why the church reaches the conclusion it reaches on this conflict, which we'll get to in a minute. So let's look at these three speeches. We'll spend most of our time on the first one, which is Peter's speech. Look at uh, verse uh, 7. After much discussion, which was not recorded, Peter got up and addressed them. So here's the first speech. The Apostle Peter He says, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, 
showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. So Peter says, hey guys, you remember this? Remember, I, something happened and I spoke to the Gentiles and they were accepted by God. So Peter, is, his argument is he's referencing an event that happened previously. Now, if you've been here studying Acts with us, you may remember this event. It was Acts chapter 10, all right? If you don't remember Acts chapter 10 or if you're not really familiar with the Bible at all, let me just tell you the story of what happened. I could do it, you know, in the Reader's Digest version, condensed version, spark notes. But, but basically, there was this Gentile. His name was Cornelius. He was a Roman centurion, and he was seeking the God of Israel and trying to learn more. And uh, he had a vision, and God spoke to him in the vision, and, and he said, Cornelius, you need to go get Peter. Here's his address. So Cornelius said, oh, I guess I better do that. So he sent some guys to get Peter. And while these guys were going to get Peter, Peter, the apostle Peter, he had a vision. And it was, it was kind of a weird vision, but, but eventually the, the, the point of the vision was there's some Gentiles coming to meet with you. It's cool to go with them. Don't, don't be thinking, oh, they're Gentiles and I'm a Jew, and so that would make me unclean to be with these Gentiles because I have declared them clean. Go with these guys. It's okay. So the guys show up, and they're like, hey, we're here for Peter. And he's like, yeah, I know. God told me. Let's go. So Peter goes back, and now there's Cornelius, and Cornelius is saying to Peter, all right, lay it on me. What, what is it God's supposed to tell me? And Peter says, uh, well, let me tell you the gospel. And Peter begins to tell him the gospel. He tells them that Jesus was crucified for him and, and crucified and buried and raised and that now through faith in Jesus, he could be forgiven and his heart cleansed. And, and right there as he's preaching to them, the Holy Spirit comes down and, and the Gentiles are converted and they have their own little day of Pentecost right there. In fact, you should look at the last bit of that story. Turn to Acts chapter 10. We won't read the whole story, but... Let's just read the last little juicy conclusion of that. Acts chapter 10, verse 39. So we pick up our story. Peter's talking to Cornelius and his Gentile buddies who are all gathered there waiting for him. It says in verse 39, Peter says, we, that is the apostles, are witnesses of everything that he, that's Jesus, Everything Jesus did in the country of the Jews in Jerusalem. They killed him. They killed Jesus by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him. That everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So that's the gospel. What a great little summary of the gospel. If you're kind of fuzzy on the gospel, just think about verses 39 to 43. Good little gospel summary. Jesus was crucified, he was raised. He's coming back as the judge. Therefore, believe in him so that you can be forgiven and be saved. That's the gospel. That's the, the nutshell of, of salvation that we proclaim. And then look at verse 44. I love this. 
While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Peter didn't even get to finish his sermon. As a preacher, I find that very frustrating. You know, I'm like, no, no, don't get saved yet. I'm not done with my sermon. Like, I have a conclusion at the end that's really going to get you. Don't worry, it's already working, brother. We're already believing. How does he know? The Holy Spirit came on those who heard the message. The circumcised believers, or those the Jewish Christians who had come to Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. So it's another day of Pentecost. It's a the Gentile Pentecost. They, they have the same thing happen to them that happened on the day of Pentecost to the Jewish Christians. So Peter draws the obvious conclusion. And Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have, just as the Jews have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Okay, now I'll go back to Acts 15. That's the story Peter's reminding them of at the conference. Now, verses 7, 8, and 9 of chapter 15 will probably make more sense. Brothers, you know that some time ago, verse 7, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips, that's Cornelius, the message of the gospel and believe. Peter spoke to Cornelius. Verse 8, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by what? Faith. So, so, You can see the logic. He's like, look, I was preaching to these guys. And they got the Holy Spirit. So so clearly, God has accepted them. If they were still unclean, unacceptable Gentiles, then God would not have put his Holy Spirit into unclean hearts. But because they've been cleaned and forgiven by the blood of Jesus, how? By just believing in Jesus, we know that God accepted them because they have the Holy Spirit. That's the logic behind it. So it should be clear, God's already chosen them. He's, he's done that. In other words, it, it's not, it, this, isn't how, this isn't how Cornelius got saved. It's not like Peter finished his sermon, and then he said, now as we end, we're going to have some music playing here, and if you want to be saved, walk down to the front during the altar call, and when you get here, there'll be someone here to circumcise you. <laughs> and after your circumcision, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The buses will wait. No one's coming. Let's play that song again. Why isn't anyone coming? <laughs> or, or he didn't say, okay, every head bowed, every eye closed. Now, if you want to receive Jesus as your Savior and pledge to eat kosher the rest of your life, you know, just put a hand up quietly in the pew right where you're at. I see that hand. Praise God, brother. Thank you. There's another one. There's another. You know, that's not how it happened. He didn't do any of that stuff. He's just preaching, preaching the gospel. And people are believing right there. And that's how you're saved, through faith alone. They just had faith. They didn't make any pledges. They didn't do any good works. They didn't sign any cards. There was no altar call. They just believed. And as they're believing, as as faith is coming into their hearts, the Holy Spirit is coming upon them. And it's like, wow, those guys must be Christians because they are having the same experience we had as, as Christians, as Jewish people. Because now what marks the people of God is no longer circumcision of the law of Moses. What is it that marks the people of God today? It's the presence of the Holy Spirit, the circumcised heart is what marks the people of God. 
If you have the Spirit of God, you belong to God. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit that marks us. And so, well, they must be one of us because they have the same Spirit that we do. And it came through faith alone, faith alone in Jesus. And then Peter gets to his punchline. Now Peter's laid it out, so now he's going to stick it to him here. Look at verse 10. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? But you know, God's already accepted them. Why are you telling them they have to do more to get accepted? Why are you telling God that what he has done is not enough? That's ridiculous. And then, I love that. And the thing you're asking him to do is something neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. So now Peter is a Jewish Christian speaking to his fellow Jewish Christians. He's like, dudes, we couldn't keep the law of Moses either. Why are you asking them to do it? We couldn't keep it. Come on. So there's not two ways of salvation. There's not a Jewish way and a Gentile way. There's one way. It's Jesus. And both Jews and Gentiles need that way. Because there's no Jewish person who's kept the law of God perfectly. And if you don't keep God's law, well, then what are you? You're a lawbreaker. And you need salvation. So we all are in the same boat. Verse 11, no, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. It's the same way. It's through grace, the grace of Jesus. Jesus alone saves, not Jesus and. And it's faith alone, not faith in some other stuff that you have to do. And it's grace alone, which means all the glory goes to God alone. Salvation through faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone, is the gospel. It's so easy, isn't it, to add the ands? My heart wants to add the and. Jesus and. That's, that's our nature we wrestle against. We want an and. We want to say something was me. Yeah, Jesus, he's 90% him, but 10% me. We always want an ad and and. Even uh, people like, like me and maybe some of you who believe in faith alone, grace alone, and we're like, yeah, 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 preach it. But in my heart, there's always that and that sneaks in. You know, and, you know, Jesus, yeah, and the fact that I don't do this, that, or the other thing. Or Jesus, and all the time I give to the church or all the money I give to the church or the things I do to help the community or things I do to, to care for others in society. That, that's the and that's added. They're good things. These are all good things. But there can't be an and for salvation. Or Jesus and I know the Bible really well. Some people don't even know the difference in the Old and New Testament. Man, I can find Zephaniah 1.3 like that. Zephaniah 1.3, found it, you know. Bible drill, gold star. And, we have these ands that we add. Here's the problem with and. This is always the problem. And is not a steady state. It never, we say Jesus and, or our hearts say that, but it never stays that way. The second you add and, this immediately begins to happen. Right? Always. It's never balanced. There's no such thing as balance when it comes to Jesus. It's either Jesus, or it's whatever you're saying, and, and then what happens is that becomes my focus, and then Jesus drops out. 
Always, always, always. There's no steady state. God will have no rivals. He's a jealous God. It's either Jesus or something else. Jesus' end is an illusion. And it always goes away. And that other thing becomes what I put my confidence in, my trust in, my sense of okayness in, my sense of acceptability before God in. We cannot serve both God and mammon. There's one or the other. And, and something we wrestle with is, as Christians, you know, to keep reminding ourselves. That's why we have to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves as Christians. Sometimes we think of the gospel as the thing that people who aren't Christians need to believe to get saved. But it's the thing that Christians need to keep preaching to themselves every day. I need to get up and preach the gospel to myself. Jeremy, you were trusting in this again. You were looking to that again. Oh, repent, believe. I love how Godwin, during his prayer, led us through just a prayer of repentance for sin. We need to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves as we, we grow in our faith, reminding ourselves that it's by Christ alone that we have the strength and power to obey God and live a godly life, not by our own strength. And so even our growth as Christians is by grace alone, through faith alone, even as we grow and serve and have put our efforts into godliness and serving others. So yeah, it, it's always the and. And you know, even, even if you're here this morning, and, and you don't yet believe in Jesus, you still have the and. It's like, even if you're like Jesus and, you're like, well, I'm not sure about Jesus. You always, everyone has the and. And your and may be something else. You know, it could be, it could be something kind of religiosity, like, look, I, I feel okay before God. I feel like I'm acceptable. You know, I feel spiritually sound. I feel like I'm legit or honorable or however you would put it. But that sense of kind of spiritual okayness and, and you say, well, yeah, you know, I was baptized as an infant and was raised in a church-going family, or I was confirmed, or, you know, I, I come to church sometimes, and, uh, or I do regular meditation, I'm spiritual, I'm spiritually minded, and, and we can put those ends as our confidence. Or sometimes it's a type of lifestyle. You know, I, I'm eating a certain way. I'm avoiding certain things for health reasons or for social justice reasons, or, you know, and maybe they're all good reasons, right? Or, or, or my lifestyle is, is living simply, or I'm reducing my carbon footprint, or, or whatever. Like, we make lifestyle choices, which may not be bad things, but they become what make us feel right and acceptable before God. Or maybe it's a vague sense of being a good person, or being well-read, or being open-minded, or being tolerant, or serving on the PTO, all good things. Or maybe it's our accomplishments, how well our company has done, what we've achieved in life, many things that are good and helpful to society. Maybe if you're a kid, it's your report card. Got a good report card, feeling good this week. Maybe as parents, it's our kid's report card. Like, I'm okay, I'm doing good, because look at my kids, right? Or whatever it may be. But none of these things save. You need to understand this. There will be many, many people who are well-read, well-educated, environmentally conscious, open-minded, spiritually sensitive, religiously active, who have adopted several rescue dogs, who donate to good causes, who pay their taxes and work hard, and there will be many such people cast into hell on the judgment day. 
because they do not have Christ. And you say, that sounds like really great people. Yeah, none of those things are bad. And in fact, I hope Christians would do some of those things. But the problem is a sin lurking underneath, a tumor in the soul, and it is the tumor of self-righteousness. Look what I have done. And so rather than the glory going to God, who is the only one worthy of worship and praise, it goes to me. Look what I've accomplished. What is the very essence of sin? Is it not treasuring something above Jesus and treasuring something above God? He is the greatest good. And so to love something other than him or to to boast in or put confidence in oneself then is the ultimate theft from God. Is he alone is worthy of our praise and our worship. What do we trust in? Is it grace? I mean, look, look, look at verse 11. No, we believe it is through the what? Grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved. We're saved by grace. What's grace? And grace is, well, here's one way to think of grace. It's the opposite of karma. Karma is do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. Grace is I've done really bad and I'm getting really good because God has had mercy and God has allowed the bad I deserve to come upon his son, Jesus Christ, who bore it on the cross so that good might come to me and that I might be of good to the kingdom of God. That's grace. Some of you are familiar with Bono. He's a lead singer of U2 cultural legend, icon, remains cool at age 50. I don't know how, somehow. But he was uh, talking in a Christianity Today article where he was being interviewed about grace and and karma. And he was saying he was kind of anti-karma, and the interviewer was asking why. And, And he said, I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep trouble. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. He said, I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins on the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. It's grace. We need grace. We need the gift of God's salvation. And, and all those things are good. And, and you know, th- those things should mark Christians. But, but, but you know, it's, uh, think about the gospel this way. I think it was Pastor Tim Keller down in New York City who put it this way. He says, you know, the, the God, uh, so often we think, if I do good, I'll be accepted. But the gospel says, you've been accepted. Now do good. Right? It's, it's that he's done the work of accepting me by grace, and now I'm liberated to serve and, and do the things God wants, not as the grounds of my standing before God, but as a, a grateful overflow of thanksgiving to God in my life. And I'll tell you what, that sounds like a simple thing, but if you just get the, that order wrong... Which one is the root and which one is the fruit? If you get that order wrong, that's a formula. If you get it right, there's salvation. And if you don't, you're lost. Everything hangs on such a simple order of thought on salvation. Okay, really quickly, let's look at the other two speeches. Next speech is Paul and Barnabas, verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Paul and Barnabas telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Right? That's the second speech. So we don't know what they said. We just know that the content was they were saying, yeah, the 
Holy Spirit was doing miracles. And so basically they're saying the same thing as Peter. Peter said, we know God's accepted the Gentiles because he gave them the Holy Spirit. Paul and Barnabas were like, yeah, he gave them a lot of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you about the miracles he did. So again, it's the same logic. They've been accepted by God through faith as evidenced by the work of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they're accepted. And then finally, the last speech is by James in verse 12. When they finished, James spoke up. Now, who is this James character? Most likely, this is James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus himself. You know, after uh, Jesus was born to Mary, the, the virgin birth, right? After that, Mary and Joseph had uh, other children naturally. The Bible tells us that that happened. And this is uh, most likely Jesus' half-brother, one of the, the children from Mary and Joseph. And at this point, he's come to faith in Jesus, and he's become a pillar in the church, and he's almost like the senior statesman, kind of like the president or something. He, he stands up, and he, rent, he renders a verdict. I love it. Verses 13 and 14. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written, and he quotes. After this, he's quoting the Old Testament. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things that have been known for ages. So, So James is like, look, We heard what God has done, but this isn't a surprise. Remember what God has already said. So it's it's God's actions in saving the Gentiles and sending the Holy Spirit and God's word that promised long ago that the Gentiles would be saved. So he quotes Amos, and man, I wish I had like 45 minutes to just go geek out on the book of Amos with you because this is such a cool quotation, but we don't have time. So let me just try to do the, the summary of it. Um, basically, there's two points. Number one, verse 16, David's fallen tent has been rebuilt. What is David's fallen tent? That's, that's the king, the kingdom of Israel under King David. And David and the king of, uh, of Israel has fallen, but now it's been rebuilt. How has David's tent been rebuilt? Jesus. He's the son of David. He's the king. The kingdom of God has come again. But not only that, look who can get into the tent. The Gentiles, verse 17, all the Gentiles who bear my name, which is crazy because in the Old Testament, there's only one people who bore the name of God, which is Israel. So to talk about Gentiles who bear his name is almost like an oxymoron, but God is going to save the Gentiles. And so now he's saying, look, the Bible even told us this was going to happen. The Gentiles are coming in by coming into Jesus. He's the tent. It's through Christ that they're saved. So God has shown us with the Holy Spirit being given to the Gentiles. He's told us in his Bible. Therefore, verse 19, it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Let's not saddle them with a bunch of ands. It's just faith alone in Christ alone. And how do we know that's the case? Because that's what we think is best for selling the Christian message? No. God has shown us. God did this, and God did that, and God told us in his word. God has determined the gospel. This was not some church council where people battled it around and came to some compromise. God has told us what saves, and it's faith alone in Jesus Christ. Oh, great, right? And then there's verse 20, and then it gets weird. Instead, verse 20, We should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. What? Where did that come from? 
I mean, that's like strange. Like, when's the last time, you know, you were at, I don't know, Chipotle, and you were like, How, was this, this chicken on my burrito, was that strangled chicken? Or was that, like, how, how was the chicken killed? I just need to, like, what is that all about? It's just really strange. And, 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 is, and even more importantly, doesn't this sound like some ands are being added? To be saved, you need to believe in Jesus and do these four things. What's going on here? Well, I mean, some of it is, is teaching. You know, sexual immorality is a, a, was a huge issue. You know, the, we, we in our society are very fast becoming like Greco-Roman society where sexual immorality is absolutely rampant. And uh, it's, it's a, sexual immorality is any sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is sexual immorality. And it was a huge problem then. So this is something to exhort the Gentiles to anyway. Um, not to save them, but just like this is how Christians live. But it's interesting, the other three items have to do with food. Food polluted by idols, the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. And, and really, it, it goes back to the Old Testament laws about you don't eat an animal with the lifeblood in it because the lifeblood was the symbol of life and it was the sacrificial thing. And if you strangle an animal, it, it has its lifeblood in it. So, so it's going back to some of those Jewish food laws. So why is he suddenly slapping some Jewish food laws on them and telling them they should do this? I think the answer is in verse 21. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in synagogues on every Sabbath. In other words, hey Gentiles, it's so awesome you're coming into the church. But here's the thing, there's still Jewish brothers and sisters in the church and you need to be sensitive to them. So, so I think what's happening is, is the recognition that, yes, the Gentiles are coming in, but now Jews and Gentiles have to get along in the same body. They have to hang out together. They have to, you know, have Bible studies together, and they have to eat together. And so now, okay, great, you Gentiles are saved by faith, but then there's some, you've got some Jewish brothers and sisters who still have just been taught this their whole lives, and, and they're going to be sensitive about what they're eating. And, and, and so what do you do with that? And so now here we are in one of those church fights over things that maybe don't matter so much. Right? We're back to where we started. What do you do when you have those church fights and there's different views and cultural customs? And, and I think the answer is you love each other and you serve each other and you defer to each other. And so you Gentiles, yes, you're saved by faith, but now it's time to learn how to love your Jewish brothers and sisters. So, so it's interesting. The more we get the gospel drilled down into our souls, the more we become men and women who are overwhelmed by the tsunami of God's love for us, and the more we're like, I can't believe God would show such grace to me and keep showing such grace to me even as I struggle as a Christian. Those are the kind of people who are in awe of the gospel who will be grace-filled people toward their brothers and sisters in Christ. Because that's it. Now we've got to all get together in the church and we, you got your preferences, I got mine, you have your views. I have, we have so, I mean, it's amazing any church stays together, frankly. What keeps us together? The gospel. Wow, Christ has been so gracious to me. I can be gracious to you. Didn't work out the way I think it should, but you know what? I'm here to serve you. You can't eat that food? Okay, whatever, I don't have a problem with it. I'm here for you. I'm going to serve you. I love you. We no longer have to keep the law of Moses. But actually we do. We have to love one another. We're, we're bound by a new law, the law of love. 
loving God and loving neighbor. We're free to love. We're empowered to love each other by the gospel. So the gospel, I think, is actually the, the root solution to so many things we disagree about in churches, which is always going to happen, is to keep coming back to the grace we've been shown, to be grace-filled people who will show grace to each other in all of those disputable things in life. Do you trust in Christ alone? Is your faith in Jesus alone? Is, is that your, your heart's cry? Are you a Christian here this morning who uh, has let some other ands creep in? I love that women's conference coming up. I love the theme, identity in Christ, because it just keeps coming back to that, right? What's my identity? Is it in Christ or is it Christ and? And so as Christians, we need to daily keep attacking the ands that keep propping up. Or maybe you're here this morning and you, uh, you don't know Jesus. And I just want to tell you, you can believe right now. Just like Cornelius, I don't even have to finish the sermon. Just believe while I'm preaching. Just believe that Jesus Christ saves anyone, anyone who believes in him. He'll save them. So believe in Jesus. He's, that's, all, that's it. You go, well, that seems super easy. Well, yeah, but it cost a lot. It cost the Son of God on the cross. But that was the grace of God. That's his gift. If you'll receive it by faith, you'll be forgiven and accepted and saved and brought into right relationship with God. You know, what, what is it that we put our confidence in? I got to see you two once in concert, um, and it was fully awesome. They're an amazing band. Uh, I was at Foxborough Stadium, and uh, I, you know, some of you know I grew up in Las Vegas, so I've seen shows, but that was like over the top awesome. The show they put on, and the lights, and the you know, just the power of the music, and the the, the stage show they put on, and and the messages and the themes. But in the middle of the concert, you know, they they power down all the the flashiness and all the, you know, techno stuff. And Bono came out on stage and he just had an acoustic and no band, no backup. And it was just him picking on his acoustic and he just sang Amazing Grace. You know, it's like, that's it. It's just grace. It's just salvation. And I think, what, what's your song and what's my song? Is, is it all the stuff of our lives or, or at the base? Or do we just stand as simple sinners who've been saved by grace alone? through faith alone, in Jesus alone, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we we just praise you this morning because it's your grace that saves us. Forgive us for thinking that anything we do could gain us favor with you. Oh, God, Forgive us for the way our self-reliance diminishes your gospel. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray for all my brothers and sisters here and for myself that you would search our hearts and just show us what in us is relying upon our own standing and our own efforts. May we be men and women who revel in grace, who just delight to talk about what you have done, not what we have done. Oh, God, may our confidence, all of it be in Christ alone, not in ourselves. God, I pray for anyone here today who's uh, in conflict, who feels at tension, who feels um, disquiet in their spirit. They feel angry. Maybe they're, they're in an argument with someone in the church or there's some, some hidden tension. Oh God, I just pray, would you overwhelm their hearts with grace, that they'd have the grace to be gracious and to forgive, just as 
you have forgiven us. And that, Lord, our church, that the grace might be the oil that lets the gears of the church run smoothly. And God, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't know you. Oh, Lord, would you just help them to believe? Would you give them the gift of faith? Just pour out the Holy Spirit on them, even in this moment, that they might abandon the shackles of self-righteous efforts, and they might be liberated by grace. The key of grace might just unlock it all, and they would be free to know that they are accepted and loved because of your Son, that Jesus' righteousness might become their righteousness, that they would trust in him alone. Oh, Lord, make it so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.